0: The Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The New Testament lesson is 2 Timothy 3.14 through 4.5. But as for you... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. Well, this morning we're continuing our journey through uh, Luke's gospel, particularly a section in Luke when Jesus is with his disciples on his way to Jerusalem. So if you will, if you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 17, I'm going to begin in verse 20, and I'll read all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 8. You can follow along in your order or, or, or where it's printed in your Bible, or you can just listen. As I read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Whereas the lightning flashes and and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I tell you, in that, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grind, grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? Well, this is God's Word. that's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that as we take in this Word, this teaching that Jesus gave us, we ask that it would meet us in whatever place we find ourselves this morning. Open our hearts to you and change us by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, waiting... We spend a lot of time in our life waiting for things. (laughs) We spend a lot of time on the train waiting for it to come. We wait for the weekend to arrive. We are waiting for the, maybe some of us are waiting for the first game of the NFL season, right, when the Bears will beat the Packers, (laughs) right? We spend a lot of time waiting for things. But this past couple of weeks, we have been under a different kind of waiting, a waiting without clear answers and with many questions. Will the shootings stop? How long before things change in our city? What needs to change? Will there be justice? You see, it is oftentimes these things that that we feel the groaning or the longing for things to be different in our world. And it's those questions, the questions filled with longing that surround our passage this morning. You see, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem is asked an interesting question by the Pharisees. They ask him when the kingdom of God would come. Now, if we've been following along in Luke's story, we know that this seems like a strange question, right? That, that Jesus has, has not only been talking about his kingdom, but, but his kingdom has been breaking into their world through his very ministry but they can't see it or they won't see it. It's a threat to their notion of the kingdom of God and their, their notion of this kingdom is perhaps maybe something obvious and grand like the overthrow of Roman oppression with majestic displays of, of God's power or typical triumphant rule on this earth, right? But it said God's kingdom has come in a disarming way like a, like a mustard seed or like leaven slowly rising into this world you see Jesus he wants them to see that the kingdom is not just some glimmer of hope in the future but it is something that is now in flesh and blood it is happening around them in the present while talking about these things with the Pharisees Jesus he he suddenly pivots he pivots to his disciples and he says you know the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And so there is, and let me just say something about Jesus' words here to his disciples. He wasn't trying to confuse them or confuse us. I mean, he, he is trying to be helpful and deeply, deeply hopeful for them and for us. And so there is one part in these words that I want to highlight. Jesus says, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man. I mean, Jesus is pointing to that time when he will usher in the kingdom of God in its right, in its fullness. When everything that is wrong will be made right again. You see, John, the apostle, he paints a beautiful picture of that time, a a masterpiece in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. John paints the picture He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. There will be no more night. And so if you can, take in that picture, right? The brightness of that place, absent of death, teeming with flourishing and abundance sustained by the presence of God himself. I mean, this isn't a place worried about the latest massacre or devastating earthquakes or racial profiling or joblessness. It's beautiful and awesome. And maybe if we are honest, hard to imagine. And yet Jesus, he invites us not to keep our eyes closed, to live in that future place, but he invites us, he invites our gaze into the present. You see, here in the present, violence is at our front door, shootings around our country, in our city. Here in the present, The loss of life, even in one weekend, has been hard to comprehend. Here in the present, we endure the constant ache of broken homes, broken relationships, maybe even the hopelessness, the hurt that keeps us from engaging our own pain, engaging repair in our relationships. Here in the present, we face persistent rejection of and consumption of people other than us, Right? People of color are kept out. They're imprisoned, even having their goodness consumed or stolen for the enjoyment of the, and entertainment of, the, of those with power and privilege. Here in the present, finding who we are in our creator has been traded in for many identities of self-expression. The present tells us that the beautiful place that John shows us, it hasn't come. Not yet. And Jesus, he gives us a glimpse into the future, the the cosmic inbreaking of the the son of man to bring about his kingdom in its fullness. But in, in verse 25, Jesus throws in a but. Before this cosmic and incomprehensible restoration of this world, Jesus says, but the son of man, he must suffer many things and be rejected this generation to the disciples this may seem confusing but to us we know exactly what he's talking about jesus must die on the cross he must be the sacrificial lamb for his people so that the power of sin and death may be defeated and this generation that he references here it applies to those who will put jesus to death and the hard news is that even jesus disciples will come and will, will come and continue to be afflicted and rejected by their generation. And this, my friends, is the ache of following Christ. We may want to mute this part. We we may want to put it into that fine print that the path with Christ is a path to Jerusalem. It is taking up our own crosses into suffering, suffering for joining Jesus in mission in this world. And as we hear, that suffering has always been and will always be the path of those walking with Jesus. And Jesus wants us to hear not just pain and rejection, but hope. You see, one day, the Son of Man will come, and one day, he will vindicate. And friends, this means, as one commentator put it, that the thought or the reality of impending and present suffering needs to be cheered on by future glory. And it also means that future glory needs to be restrained by impending suffering. They work together in real time with flesh and blood by God's Spirit, activating us to engage our world lost and undone by the power of sin. So waiting, what are we to do in our time of waiting well Jesus he tells us a parable and he gives us some instructions to all the would-be waiters he said we are to pray we and and to, to not lose heart and Jesus he wants us to see that prayer is the mark it's the activity of Christians caught between the times that is in between the time of Christ's first coming and the time when he will come again And this parable is somewhat unlike other parables in that it is pretty clear what the parable is about. In fact, Luke goes ahead and he just tells us up front why Jesus tells this parable. So that the disciples will always pray and not lose heart. Right? He just says that plainly. And so he moves into it. He tells us about a judge, a single judge in a one-judge town. And he's the guy, the decision maker on all matters brought before him. We're told that he is not the cleanest judge around. He neither fears God nor respects men. Or in other words, he's, he's pretty corrupt and immoral. Big surprise, an, an immoral justice system, right? And more than this, to fear God meant, in the Old Testament, primarily it meant to fear him as a judge. And so Luke, he's going out of his way to tell us that this judge has no concern with the judgment of of God. He takes it lightly. He casts it aside. He probably even thinks to himself that there is no cosmic consequence to things in this world. It's easily dismissed. And here's the thing. If you hold all the cards or think you have the power, then what what is to stop you from doing what you want when it suits you at your own pleasure I mean, the the perceived power of this judge, it is immense, and it is deeply myopic. It's like Dostoevsky says in the Brothers Karamazov, when there is no God, everything is permissible. For this judge, there is no God. There is no transcendent moral framework that will hold his verdicts accountable. I mean, if he doesn't care about God, why should he care about justice? I mean, we can imagine the fear, the fear of meeting this judge, this judge without a true north on a bad day. I mean, nothing to stop him from ordering things as it suits his own pleasure. And unfortunately, we know that this is not some ancient world problem. This is a human problem. And Luke, he also tells us that not only does he not care about God, he also doesn't care about man. And even in our own day, when people might be atheists to the core, a a judge, perhaps even, they still will oftentimes have compassion for people. But this judge is different. He doesn't care about God or man. And of course, the reality sets in when when we divorce ourselves from God, it gets to be a lot easier to divorce ourselves from the dignity of those around us. Image bearers. People who matter to God, not because of their socioeconomic background or their ethnicity or how smart or put together they seem, or even if they live in the right places. No, they have value because they bear the imprint of God in their very being. It cannot be taken away by all all their bad choices or how much they smell or how greedy and self-centered they present, right? All people bear the image of God. All of us are deeply, deeply valuable to him. Now there's another character in this parable that Jesus shares. She's the justice seeker. (laughs) and She's not just any justice seeker. Jesus tells us that she is the widow. And right away the disciples would have felt the vulnerability and the desperate place of this woman. You see, widows were one of the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. Once her husband died, she lost her financial support. She lost her protector. But we see in Scripture that God is very attentive to really three different kind of people groups. Orphans, sojourners, foreigners, sojourners or foreigners, and then widows. And so there were all kinds of laws established to help protect widows. Food was to be left in the field so that they might glean it and be able to eat it. We're told in Exodus 22 that God is particularly concerned that no one treat her with scorn. And in Deuteronomy 27, we see that God offers cursing specifically on those who prevent the justice due a widow. So when the widow, she goes before this judge, we can feel the desperation. The injustice rise in our stomachs. She is no concern He isn't interested in her vulnerability. He isn't interested in the kind of world that reaches out to her with kindness and justice. She is easily dismissed and treated with contempt. So what is she to do? She has no leverage to animate the wheels of justice, right? So she turns to the one thing in her power that she can control, her own persistence. She's unwavering, she is indiscourageable, singular in her approach. And the judge, he's no slouch himself, right? He is stubborn in his resistance, but he's no match for this desperate woman. And eventually he is beaten down by her persistence and out of exhaustion he relents to her demands of justice. I mean, we can feel the relief, the cheering, the satisfaction that finally something good, something right, has come back to someone in real need of it. Well, after telling this parable, Jesus shifts and he begins to offer some commentary on it. We're reminded of Luke's words at the beginning that we ought to pray and to to not lose heart. So we're told the parable is about prayer and persistent faithful prayer, but if we are careful listeners, we will also hear that there is more to it. You see, you cannot divorce the prayer that is offered from the character of the person who prays and the content of their prayer. Jesus shows us what is required to pray, prayers that are kingdom-centered, that are faithful and persistent. And listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will give justice to them quickly. Friends, God calls us to to pray for justice. To pray for justice on behalf of those who are in hopeless situations, who experience the brokenness of the world in greater ways than we ourselves do. And if we're honest... Prayer is something that is easier said than done, right? The natural, the curious question is, why is that? Why is it that we have a difficult time praying? Well, I want to suggest to you that prayer finds its initiative in trouble. That is, we pray when we recognize the trouble we are in. And we, can th- and we can find ourselves so insulated from trouble or so we think or we can imagine that we don't have any motivation or, or see the need to pray. But if we look at the prayers in scriptures, they are often motivated. They are driven by trouble. I take, for example, Psalm 3, which begins with this, Lord, how many are my foes? I mean, <laughs> they are brief, frightened, urgent words, right? a person in trouble calling out to God. His life is in danger, and if he doesn't get help, his life could be over or, at the very best, diminished in some significant way. Well, Eugene Peterson, he talks about prayer and this problem of not recognizing trouble. He writes, The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time, and those who don't know that they are in trouble are in the worst trouble. (laughs) And he goes on to say, the recipe for obeying Paul's commands to pray without ceasing is not a strict ascetical regime, but rather a watchful recognition of the trouble that we are in. I mean, God's people are always crying out to God in trouble. Jacob cries out, when his brother Esau is chasing him. Hannah in her barrenness cries out that God might fill her womb. The Israelites cr- cr- cry out in, in their oppression. I mean, Jesus cries to the Father, cries out in his isolation, is it in his abandonment on the cross. And over and over again, God's people are praying to God in their place of trouble. They connect the harsh realities they are in to the one who can actually meet them, who can join them, who has the power to do something. (laughs) But if we're honest, we can assume that we're not in trouble. We can believe that my problems are not, that are nothing that I can't handle on my own or I have the capacity just to, to suck it up. But let me ask, let me just ask, what kind of trouble do you find yourself in? Are you okay letting your trouble be seen, letting it be heard? Can you tell others when you are not okay, when you are mad? Can you share that with God? Can you talk to God about your stress at work or how much you hate your kids right now? I mean, can you pray a prayer and admit you often feel lonely? And how close can you get to that trouble? Well, Jesus, he invites us to get real close, to pray about the trouble around us, to pray about the trouble that is in us, and to do it over and over again, even when it seems quiet, to come in faith, to not lose heart, knowing that God will answer. Faithful prayer is kingdom prayer, forged in the crucible of trouble. Let me pray for us. Father, we feel the ache and the longing of the waiting, waiting for things to be made right, waiting for justice to rain down in this world. We especially feel that in our city, in El Paso, in Dayton. And Father, we ask that you would help us to have whatever it takes, the the faith it takes to believe that that day is coming. And Lord, activate us to engage the brokenness, the lostness, to be people who move towards the trouble in us and around us, to join you in mission as we wait. Work in us to be people who are busy making your kingdom appear here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, do this for our good, and do this for the good of the broken world around us. Amen.